From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. In the last year, we took uh, 30,000 people to Europe, and frankly, I made too much money because I didn't have to pay for the carbon we generated by flying those people to Europe and back. This week on our show, we talk with Rick Steves about a self-imposed carbon tax on his European travel company. And we talk with Janice Nadwerney of Food for Farmers about coffee growers shifting their farming practices for greater community food security. That's all just ahead on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Renee Reed has some news for us. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Coronavirus fears have shaken up the food industry on both the supply and demand sides of the checkout counter. The pneumonia-like virus is linked to more than 3,000 deaths worldwide, and this week has seen a slow trickle of new cases and fatalities in the U.S. Consumers worried about possible quarantines are pulling bulk items off the shelves and waiting in epic lines at stores. Unlike climate disasters, such as hurricanes and wildfires, disease outbreaks don't take utilities like power and water offline. But experts say those preparing for the worst should take time to plan before rushing into the supermarket scrum. Nielsen data from February shows a surge in purchases of durable food items such as fruit snacks, energy drinks, dried beans, pretzels, and water. The Department of Homeland Security recommends having a two-week supply of food and water to prepare for a possible pandemic or quarantine. Nutritionists who spoke to Business Insider said shoppers should plan meals carefully instead of buying too many staples that won't get used. Clearing out expired items and taking stock of what's already in the cupboard is a key step in planning. At the supermarket, balance durable protein sources like canned fish and beans with canned and frozen vegetables, whole grains and dry pasta, plus beneficial fats like olive oil and nuts. They also suggest making large batches of favorite meals for storage. Produce with the best shelf life and nutritional bang per pound include potatoes, cabbage, onions, and citrus fruits. Though sales spike at the checkout counter, big food companies have taken a hit along with the rest of the stock market, even as companies such as Nestle and Cargill have curtailed non-essential travel for employees. Supply chain woes have companies like Coca-Cola scrambling for sweeteners and other materials that normally come from China. After 10 seasons of cover crop use, fields retain more moisture and less soil is lost to erosion. Those are among the results of a Learning Farmers, Practical Farmers of Iowa study. Farmers planted cereal rye as a cover crop on strips of fields next to areas without a cover crop. Liz Ripley of Iowa Learning Farms says in the first year, some farmers saw modest yield declines. But over time, yields were the same or slightly better where cover crops grew and soil health improved. Ripley says the study sites were all in Iowa, but the findings should hold up throughout the Corn Belt. They're going to see very similar results in terms of the impacts on crop yields. When it comes to some of the other variables, here in Iowa we have some really great soils. For a little further south, you know, they start with a little bit lower organic matter, and so they can have the opportunity for faster increases in soil organic matter. Ripley noted that where small yield losses occurred, farmers made adjustments to how they plant their cash crop and were able to return to their expected yields. Thanks to Amy Mayer of Harvest Public Media and Chad Bouchard for those stories. For Earth East News, I'm Renee Reed. Thanks for that, Renee. You are most welcome, Kate.
Some of you avid public radio listeners out there will be familiar with our next guest, Rick Steves. He's best known for his show, Travel with Rick Steves, on public radio and on public television. He's also the head of Rick Steves' Europe, a U.S.-based European travel and guidebook company. What I do is I teach Americans how to travel in Europe. That's my beat, and uh, I see Europe as a waiting pool for world exploration. And I work with uh, over 100 people here in Seattle, and our mission is to inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando, to get out of our comfort zone and to come home with a broader perspective. And uh, our radio show is carried by, I think, 400 stations around the country in public radio. And uh, the main way I make money is by taking people to Europe on tours. We took 30,000 people on over 1,000 tours last year. We have uh, well over 100 uh, European guides that we employ, and this is um, an exciting way for Americans to be able to connect smartly and efficiently and economically with Europe. We're talking with Rick Steves here on Earth Eats this week because of the new Climate Smart commitment he's launched. I'll let Rick explain this initiative and what's behind it. The whole passion I have for inspiring Americans to get out there and travel is to deal honestly with challenges confronting us. And there's a lot of challenges. Uh, America's never been so fearful and ethnocentric, and there's a, a lot of fearful people that don't have a passport, that think that everybody's scary out there and the world's a dangerous place and we should build walls. And I find that um, the more you travel, the more you realize the world's a beautiful place and uh, we, we can work with the family of nations and deal smartly with the challenges confronting us. A big challenge, of course, is climate change. When you travel, you realize it's here. You can see it in, in just kind of silly ways for uh, affluent travelers not to be able to ski in the summer or uh, there's no air conditioning in, in Germany because they didn't used to need it and now they do need it. There are so many ways that you can see that things are changing in the climate and but that's that's just kind of little annoyances for wealthy people i find in my travels that it's the poorest countries and the poorest people in the poorest countries that are impacted most severely by climate change and uh, when you travel you you gain an awareness of that and i think uh, you when you fly home you realize yeah we got to get on board and help stop this so, you know, one thing that I've done lately is our climate smart commitment. We've given ourselves, a, it's basically a self-imposed carbon tax. Something that I feel um, very committed to is helping my company travel in an ethical way when it comes to climate change. In the last year, we took uh, 30,000 people to Europe. And um, frankly, I made too much money because I didn't have to pay for the carbon we generated by flying those people to Europe and back. And I wish our government made us account for that in an honest way. But here in the United States, our government just wants to have the short-term economic prosperity with no honest concern about sustainability in the long term. Well, I just don't think that's ethical. So I gave myself a self-imposed carbon tax. There's a consensus that when an American flies to Europe and back, they generate about as much carbon as you typical American generates by driving their car for six months. And you can solve that by not traveling, but I think I want to travel, you know, it's fun and the world's an important place to explore and it's just very constructive to get out there and, and uh, have a broader perspective. But if we want to travel, we can travel in a way where we can mitigate the carbon we produce by investing in organizations that are fighting climate change. And uh, again, this is a consensus among the scientific community that if you spend $30 smartly you know, investing in NGOs that are fighting climate change, 
That creates enough good to mitigate the bad you create when you fly to Europe and back. So I thought, I'm taking 30,000 people to Europe. Let me pay $30 for each of those people in a smart way. And we can create as much good as we create bad. And we can then tr fly essentially carbon neutral. So $30 times 30,000 people is $900,000, rounded up to a million dollars. And our annual tax is a million dollars. I took it out of our profit. I'd like to do it in a way that is kind of a twofer that helps people in the developing world because I know that half of humanity is smallholder family farms living on trying to live on $5 a day. We decided to choose 10 companies that are doing good work and uh, we gave them a million dollars. So that's an average of 100,000 each. And uh, each of them are doing their work. We're empowering them. And that gives us the, the joy and the peace of mind of knowing that uh, we're flying to Europe ethically. It's nothing heroic. I'm not doing anything extra. It's simply ethical. I should not be able to run my tour business without covering my carbon costs. And I wanted to support uh, farmers in the developing world. And I also wanted to support advocacy organizations that are lobbying for the environment in our government in Washington, D.C. to educate and encourage our legislators to be ethical when it comes to having government policies that fight climate change rather than maximize our economic uh, environment in the short term. So when I support an advocacy organization, I'm supporting lobbying for the environment, lobbying for poor farmers south of the border, lobbying for sustainability. Um, you know, that's, that's the advocacy uh, agenda that I'm supporting with this um, self-imposed carbon tax. I really appreciate that some of the funding that you're providing is going to these advocacy organizations because I think a lot of times an individual's initial response to what can I do about climate change is turn down their thermostat or, uh, you know, recycle or something. And, and it, the impact that you can have is so much greater if, if policy changes. You know, that's, that's such a good point, Kate. That's a very important point. And to me, personally, the lion's share of my philanthropy goes to advocacy organization when it comes to economic justice and environmental issues and so on. I really believe that, uh, well, I know that all of the charity and philanthropy and hard work by NGOs put together when it comes to fighting poverty doesn't amount to much at all compared to the impact of government policies on those same issues. As a philanthropist, I like to, um, it's just fun for me to, to support organizations that resonate with me. That was Rick Steves talking about his climate smart commitment. After a short break, we'll hear from someone involved with one of the organizations that his self-imposed climate tax is supporting. Stay with us. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838.
Kate Young. You're listening to Earth Eats. Before the break, we were talking with Rick Steves about his Climate Smart initiative. His travel company has selected 10 organizations to support this year as a way to offset the impact of his company's overseas air travel. One of those organizations is Food for Farmers. I spoke with Janice Nadworny, a co-founder of Food for Farmers. They work with coffee farming cooperatives in Latin America on building community food security. When they started in 2010, they were interested in a different development model than what they had been seeing in coffee-producing regions. Often, the NGO comes in or the organization comes in, the consultant comes in, without ever really asking the community, what are the core issues at the heart of this problem? Food insecurity looks very different in, in communities around the world, and it's caused by different factors. And so what we decided to focus on was the diagnostic. That's where we sit down and ask the community and at different levels. We ask the board, we ask the staff of the cooperative, we ask families who are members, individually and collectively, what is affecting their livelihoods, their quality of life. And so through focus groups and surveys and conversations, we get an understanding of what is at the heart of this problem? What does food insecurity look like? What are the challenges to livelihoods? And so oftentimes you'll find that the cause of food insecurity is not lack of food. It might be depleted soils or lack of reliable water throughout the year. It might be no electricity, no roads, importation of processed packaged foods that are very unhealthy. People are not cooking. They've lost their traditional recipes. They've lost their seeds. And so before we co-design a strategy, we ask those questions of everyone in the community. And then we work with local partners and cooperative and families to develop strategies and set goals. And then together we co-design a plan, long-term plan for food security. And then we find expertise locally from partners who can teach families and a co-op how to implement those strategies and manage them independently. So our role becomes guide and auditor and teacher and connector. I asked Janice if she could explain the role of cooperatives in coffee-producing communities. I'd say 70 to 80% of all coffee is produced by small-scale farmers who own farms of less than 10 acres. A lot of them own farms of about an acre. So all of that beautiful specialty coffee that people love is produced entirely by hand, by families all over the world and with very little land. And because coffee is a cash crop, it's a way for people to earn money, to send their kids to school, buy clothing, all the things they can't do in a barter economy. And because the promise of coffee prices has been so strong and demand has been so strong, that people have put most or all of their land into producing coffee. And over time, at the same time, they pr- stopped producing food. So they've been using cash from their coffee crop to buy food. So rural areas now, which were agricultural producing food, have now become food deserts. And so food is now brought in, trucked in or flown in from the city or from other countries, maybe even the U.S. And people are consuming really unhealthy processed foods. So you'll go to very remote communities and people will be drinking Coke and eating Fritos and they're not growing it anymore. So small scale farmers, because they produce so little coffee on their one acre or five acres, even if they put all of their land into it, 
they have no pricing power. They have no ability to determine the price for their coffee. So mm-hmm. they group together in cooperatives. Okay. Coffee cooperatives are their membership organizations. So it's a business. It's a coffee growing business. And what they do is they aggregate all of the coffee from their members and sell it in larger volumes so they can get a better price. Some cooperatives are small, 90 or 100 families. Some are in Africa, they tend to be larger. They can be 100,000 families. In Latin America, our partners range from 200 to 5,000 families, depending on where they are. They grow their coffee independently. They get support from the cooperative, technical support for growing coffee. And then the co-op collects and sells their coffee. So the cooperative is a membership and it represents small families. And that's who we work with. And what are the countries that your organization works in? We work in Mexico, in Chiapas, in Guatemala, with two organizations there, in Nicaragua, and in Colombia. And three of the co-ops we work with are indigenous. Three are led by women. I think all of them are fair trade. They all produce organic coffee as well. You were talking about the food security issues in these communities because they're not growing food anymore. And so what is your organization's role in that, in dealing with the the food insecurity? We're walking into a situation where there are decades of kind of food policy and agricultural policy has really promoted in chemical inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, all of that, monoculture, all of those policies now have degraded the soil that they're farming. They've degraded the environment around the farms. And at the same time, small producers have been pressured to grow organic, to grow Rainforest Alliance, other certifications that will give them a premium over their low coffee prices. And so the focus has been on coffee, improve the quality and productivity of your coffee, and you'll get more money and you'll be okay. And they're not okay. Poverty's Worse than ever, coffee prices have dropped 29% the last 10 years. Food prices are up anywhere from 40 to 70% over the same time period, depending on the country. And so people have been leaving their farms for years to find work. Men typically go to the city or they'll emigrate north like they are now when prices are low and they can't sustain through farming. Women are left to farm. There's no investment available for making their coffee quality better. So when we come in... There are already things going on in the community that are working and really exciting. Somebody's keeping chickens, somebody's selling eggs, somebody's keeping bees, and cacao. That's another strategy. So there are things already going on that is already an asset that could be expanded. So we come in, we look at farms from the farmer's perspective, and not necessarily producing anything to meet the buyer's needs, but what will help sustain them and helping them look at all the different markets they can sell to. They can sell locally or nationally in their own country. They could export. And then we look at the farms and see ways to diversify those farms, restore environmental health through composting, organic practices, soil restoration, water systems that will allow people to grow vegetables. We look at each farm as a food hub, and then we help each family develop plans for their own farms and help the co-op tie those plans together through a strategy. So if the community chooses home gardens, organic home gardens, so they can produce food, what we found is, for example, that 
they're growing organically, they're diversifying their farm, they're supporting pollinators, they're extending the agroforestry system in by planting native trees to shade their veggies. Uh, we also work with communities to help them bring back traditional recipes, traditional seeds, so that they can maintain the biodiversity of food farming throughout Latin America. So depending on the community, the strategies will look different. Cacao is something we're doing, basic grains, maize and corn, organic vegetables, eggs. But it depends on, first, what the community is interested in, and second, what's feasible. It sounds like it's messy and complicated and individual to each family or each farm or each cooperative. Like, it doesn't sound like you just have a plan and you go in and implement it. <laughs> like, it sounds like it's really <laughs> that messy, complicated kind of work. It is. And each case, I have to say, in each of our programs, we now have six, six community partners. Whatever we planned at the beginning, I assure you it's changed drastically <laughs> since we developed our long-term plan because things go wrong somebody finds a wonderful new opportunity, things just change. And so I think the challenge and the exciting part of the work is that you go with it. So there are things that happen in each place that were unanticipated that have made the project so much better and so can, much successful. Can you give an example of that that comes to mind? We had started a program with the Sopexca Co-op in Nicaragua. They wanted to develop their organic brand for food. So Sopexica produces very high quality organic coffee and we had a home garden program and they wanted to start a women's organic farmer's market. All women growing organic fruits and vegetables and selling at this local market because there was no healthy organic produce readily available. Mm -hmm. So we worked on training. Women were growing beautiful crops. They were very entrepreneurial, excited, energized to get going. And then in April 2018, the political unrest in Nicaragua stopped everything. There were protests over, I think it was Social Security retirement benefits rate increases. There were student protests mm -hmm. that expanded throughout the country. It became very dangerous and violent over the next several months. People couldn't leave their homes. They couldn't travel. And so what happened was the co-op food security coordinator couldn't get to the villages where the women lived to help them. They couldn't bring their produce to market. They were stuck and everything stalled. And so we were concerned that it would stop and we wouldn't make progress and they wouldn't make progress. But what happened was because people were stuck at home, they couldn't go out to buy food. So all the families that had these gardens that had this produce were able to get through the four or five months where this was going on and feed themselves. And then they had enough food to sell or give to their neighbors. So they got by as well. It became their safety net, their only safety net. There's been so much emigration because of the lack of opportunity or food that people were leaving when they could. Lots of people fled Nicaragua. These families stayed and they helped their neighbors through it. And my co-director was just there last week. And the market is thriving. They're adding a third day. They want to go to five days a week. It was packed. Produce is beautiful. Women are selling and they're becoming powerful, small business women and have so many ideas about how to grow this business. But that worst case scenario that we saw as a huge problem ended up being a benefit, a really key benefit of the work. 
I asked Janice to talk about food for farmers and climate change. Coffee and other crops like it are hugely impacted by climate change, and they also impact climate change through monoculture and chemical inputs. And so if you look at the number of small-scale farmers that are growing coffee, moving them away from chemical inputs and monoculture to diversified agroecological farms, using organic practices, conserving soil, conserving water, increasing biodiversity, that has a huge impact on climate change if farmers change their practices. Not only their farming practices, though, it's what is happening with the food systems globally. Where you look at rural communities, now, you know, before they were producing food, now they're getting food shipped to them from halfway around the world Mm -hmm. through food aid, through general market trends and dietary trends. They're getting their unhealthy processed food shipped in from other countries. They've lost their food traditions. Their health is deteriorating. Malnutrition looks like obesity and diabetes and heart disease now. So by growing food locally and organically, they're improving their health and diets. They're reducing all those transport costs and that processing cost of unhealthy food. And they're also impacting climate change in that way. So thirdly is if they become thriving food hubs themselves, then everybody in their communities can have access to healthy food. Everybody in their communities can have locally produced foods. And so the cost of transporting all of that food goes down drastically as well. So we feel that we definitely have a direct relationship between the Climate Smart commitment and and our work. That was Janice Nadwerney co-founder of Food for Farmers, an organization that works to build food security in coffee-growing communities in Latin America. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Janice. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Anytime. Food for Farmers is one of the recipients of funding from the Rick Steves Climate Smart Commitment. You can hear more about these projects on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Rick Steves, Danielle Winslow, Haley Reinholdt, Kyle Friend, and Janice Nadwerney. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, 
bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.